Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining us for the second episode of Insight. Um, I am really excited to have Hiroko as my guest today. She's just a fierce presence in the music scene and techno, currently based in Chicago. Um, from uh, Japan originally, her heritage, and she's played all over the world, um, Berlin, Ibiza, Turkey, right? I think I, I talked to you one time when you were in yeah, Turkey touring. I had, I had a, a layover there. Okay. Yeah, yeah it, was, uh, it, was, it was an interesting airport. But all over, right? Yeah, I've been, I've been kind of jumping around a little bit. Uh, pretty lucky with that. So. Yeah. Um, you've released on all sorts of labels. Your bio says your current homes are Tracks Records, Impact Mechanics, Slapjacks. I saw you're also on Apollo Music, though, Heather's label. Yeah, um, super cool label. Super cool label. Yeah, yeah. And um, then you also have two other projects, Bio Booster, which is your drum and bass moniker, I believe. And then Monologic. And yeah, there's... Those two I haven't done in a bit. Um, Monologic was kind of something I was part of. Like um, there was this guy, Paul Norman. I used to like do tag team drum bass stuff with, and he started this really cool electro band and he needed somebody to create keyboards and like kind of help run Ableton um, while we played live. But it was very much his project that I kind of helped out with. And then the drum bass thing, it just kind of, um, drum and bass just kind of went in a weird direction. And um, it was kind of when I slowed down on DJing and music in general. So um, once in a while, if, if there's an opportunity, I really do enjoy playing drum and bass, but uh, there's just not that many opportunities to do so anymore. Mm. What do you mean by it went in a weird direction? Gosh. The music kind of, um, I'd say like early 2000s drum and bass kind of had this like very technical, dark aesthetic to it. Like the whole kind of like tech scene um, and like the neurofunk scene had um, musically was just in a certain direction. And um, drum and bass was always kind of a small thing stateside, right? It, it's like genuinely a kind of British export, right? And I think that was part of my attraction to it. It was very like, it's super cool and super unique. And kind of growing up in Chicago, everything is house here. So um, German bass was kind of like, um, it felt like the rebellious music to be into. Um, but uh, the music changed a bit. There was like some big tracks have kind of been formed a new sound, which kind of led to like the current jump up sound, like really aggressive, um, big bass sounds. And it, it kind of crossed over a bit with like US dubstep, you know, it's like, it's like the difference I'd say with like UK dubstep and US dubstep, right? There's this like dubby element and funky element that got replaced by this like very aggressive, elements and the the crowds changed with that, the scene changed with that. And um, the the attendance also just kind of just dropped off at some point, right? And I think it 
did you ever come to any of the like the base by the pound shows and like rotation shows in Chicago? If I'm really honest with you, um, I couldn't tell you. Okay. I went to a ton of shows sure. and I, I, my memory is not the greatest. I don't remember what a lot of them were, but I'm definitely familiar with Bass by the Pound. So like there was this like, I can't even tell you the year because it all mushes together, but there was this period that um, when like hospital records first started kind of popping off and like um, the Norwegian uh, and uh, Dutch guys were getting big, like Black Sun Empire and all those labels. German bass really kind of started to peak in the US. So in Chicago, we would get major touring acts regularly, right? And it became almost like a weekly thing. There'd be a major act rolling through Chicago. And I think everyone just got spoiled, right? Because for a while, that was like a huge deal that we'd be able to go see an artist of that caliber in a, in a kind of sizable venue. Um, and I think because of how often it was happening um, and also because of the change in music, it just suddenly dropped off, like attendance dropped off, um, the people kind of changed and it was already a small scene to begin with. So um, it, uh, yeah, I just, I kind of, I, I don't want to say I lost love for it because I will always like that music, but my taste was kind of frozen in that, that time, you know. Yeah, that makes sense. What um, what year was that about-ish that you felt it changing and you kind of stepped back a little bit? I'm going to have to Google that because it all like mushes together. Yeah. I, I, I'd say like 2002, 2003. Um, I'm probably just making that number up, but it just, it, it, it just, it, it, the music had changed. And a, a big part of that was like the, the rise of dubstep and the rise of EDM and kind of, I think what, what is categorized now as bass music. I think those, those borders got very, um, and maybe in a good way, but they, they kind of got crossed over quite a bit. Right. Yeah. And even like, especially from like Milwaukee, there's all these also like hardcore DJs that are incorporating fast breaks and that kind of style started coming up. So um, as things got specialized and divergent, um, I think I just kind of lost interest in the whole thing. And um, around that time, I also was just kind of, um, I thought I was done with with DJing for, for a little bit and um, uh, just kind of took a break and, and um, didn't even go out that much. It was like um, this, this long break from music in general. And, um, but recently I think like German bass has started to come back, especially in like the um, festival format. But because of that, you're only seeing like festival caliber DJs and playing festival sets. So um, it's, it's a different thing altogether now. Yeah, and we see that across the genres, right? Not just with drum and bass, but, um, and that's why I was asking about the year because there was that whole shift towards EDM too with the house um, and just electronic music scene in general around that time. I think we all felt, felt this big shift. Um, 
as I think America embraced the fact that electronic music could be commercialized. That's what you know, it felt like to me. That and, and in England, it had been embraced from the beginning that sure. electronic music would be their commercial music. And America kind of embraced hip hop in the 80s, right? And rap. And then um, suddenly in the 2000s, it was like, oh, we can make money off this at some point. Um, and it kind of all went weird and then started finding its feet again. Um, Quite a bit I think, later. I think it's also like, I'm sure you can speak on this as well, but like after kind of the the curve of the rave scene died off, right? After raves became illegal in Chicago. And I'm sure that affected Wisconsin, although I think you guys kind of had an underground scene going a little bit longer. But things really dropped off in that way too. So as the music started getting further and further away from raves, like you know, six years off from the last like proper rave party, um, the the people that were attending them and, and the people that were putting these events on now maybe weren't coming from that background, right? So right. Um, it, it's always weird to run into people that like didn't come up through that because it's like, a very unique thing especially in the midwest right like uh, midwest raves were real um real special time and musically uh really influential uh, for me and for just kind of the world in general so um yeah once we started getting further further away and these things started becoming just more club events they kind of started taking on their own life and um yeah, I just didn't really fit into that, right? I was just kind of this raver kid. And so this like bougie EDM club atmosphere was just not really the thing for me. Can you speak a little bit about um, those glory rave days? What that was like um, for you? Was that when you came into DJing and what was really magical about it? You know, it's, 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 Chicago especially, like we would have events with really high caliber talent every week, right? And and really like insane spots with tons of like really high quality sound. And um, I, I started luckily uh, DJing pretty early in, in the game. I can't, I can't even remember when, but it's, uh, I probably started DJing before I should have, right? Like I thought I knew what I was doing for quite a while until I realized like I really didn't know what I was doing. Like I had this like confidence in um, what I thought was correct mixing and phrasing and all these kind of technical skills that it took me a, a little while for, for me to listen to people's advice and being like, okay, yeah, that does, that does sound off. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, it, 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 there, Chicago was different than a lot of places because there was always a mixture of different genres at every party, right? Um, I think the promoters here, and I think Wisconsin as well, made sure there was like a hardcore DJ, a house DJ, a techno DJ, or, or some kind of derivative of that. And um, I was lucky enough to um, see a lot of the innovators early on. And so um, that, that kind of helped me 
inform my musical choices and, and whatnot. So, um, plus it was just like this cool illegal thing to do and, and be bad on the weekends, right? And like sneak out of the house. So um, yeah, I wouldn't trade that for anything. I was just talking to some friends about that. Like, uh, you know, now we have these DJs in the game that never went to a rave, right? Just because of, yeah, understandably, they weren't around. They weren't born yet even when, when some of the stuff was going on. So it's a totally different take on underground music, right? Because that connotation and that association isn't there. So um, it's still valid, right? It's still an interesting perspective, but it's different. And it's hard to relate to somebody where you can't be like, remember when we used to go to this shady venue and with X promoter that was such a jerk or whatever funny story there was. Um, uh, those, those folks are becoming less and less, you know, as, as, as we grow, grow maybe away from things and responsibilities start to take us away from um, uh, music and stuff like that. But um, I'm still hanging in there. How important do you think it is to, to preserve that aspect of our culture in a way that it's getting passed on to the newer people who are coming into it and weren't around? I kind of go back and forth with like, you know, when I was young, hearing people talk about what it was like in their day and how that really wasn't very impactful. Right. It was just, no, we're doing our thing and our thing's awesome. And you just don't understand how awesome sure. it is. Sure. Um, and yet at the same time, what you're describing is the, is where all of this sprang from. It's the roots of it. So I kind of go like, how much should I make that part of my thing to try and educate the people who I'm promoting to as right. a promoter and how much do we just let it be and let them do their thing. It's so experiential though, like I, I, I don't even, I can't necessarily describe that sensation or that experience, right? Because it's tied to how young I was at the time, what was going on in that time period, the political climate of the city. There's just all these things tied into it. So um, to try to um, take all that and explain that in in some way it's 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 kind of like it's one of those things that I'm like you kind of just had to be there right and so the best that I can do is kind of decide that the most I can do is take that musical information and kind of be a byproduct of that right and and that's kind of informed what I what I do when I DJ and and the music that I play. Um, other than that, I can just tell like war stories, but those war stories are always more exciting when the other person knows what you're talking about, right? And you can like high five each other about this like maybe very silly thing that you did. But um, uh, yeah, yeah, it was a special time, right? And I think because it did end, it makes it more precious, right? It's, it's this thing that we had and it, Maybe it did go a little longer than it should. Maybe it didn't go long enough. It's, it's hard to tell, right? Uh, how yeah. long those kinds of things should have kept going. But uh, to me, it's something that I'll always hold really sacred. Um, even though it had its like 
really terrible aspects. I can romanticize those now that there's, there's time away from it now. What are some of those? Would you mind sharing that? Yeah, sure. There, you know, um, as spaces became tougher, um, promoters would, would book venues deeper and deeper into maybe more troubled or um, uh, areas that maybe you shouldn't have kids going to at three in the morning and um, the problems that are associated with that. And, um, you know, you, you'll, you would see money passing hands with undercover police officers, just kind of stuff that, um, because I wasn't really directly into it, it just seemed like crazy. And I was like, whoa, look at that, that's nuts. But, um, you know, we, there'd be like parties busted and guns would come out and, all sorts of crazy things like that. And um, at the time, I'm sure I was scared out of my mind, but like looking back, it's kind of a funny story. Um, as well as like, you know, I think, I think pe people's like use of drugs and like, it was, it was just more illicit at the time, right? Because it wasn't a club. So you would just kind of witness um, crazy things, right? And yeah. um, uh, ha having having seen that will always change you, right? Because it's it changes the perspective and always that association with like rave culture and drugs and kind of this debauchery aspect and like, is it all about the music? Are people just going there in a party? Are they just doing to do drugs? And at a certain point, you're like, well, you know, it, they're going to do what they're going to do, and they're going for their reason. So it kind of dissecting that just gets exhaustive anyway. So why do I really care why they're going there? So um, for me, it was very much about the music and getting to see like, just really just, you would see this progression. Like it was just like this hot point where techno was kind of coming into its own. Chicago techno was absolutely defining itself at the time, kind of away from what was going on in Detroit all the stuff that was going on in Milwaukee and Wisconsin with, uh, you know, Drop Bass and all the other promoters. It was, we had these like Michigan, uh, Wisconsin and Chicago are very close cities, right? And um, a lot of us would go between uh, cities on the weekends, but they couldn't be more diverse at the same time, right? Like, um, so, I'll always put Midwest raves up against any other scenes that were going on at the time. I know New York and LA was kind of claim the mantle, but I think the magic that was going on between Wisconsin, I'll even throw Minnesota in there actually. Minnesota was part of that. So, and they're, they're all really unique with unique ideas. And I think you still see like the lineage of a lot of those promoters and DJs, right? And, and those crews still. So um, yeah, I'm sorry, I'm totally on a tangent there. <laughs> well, good. Oh, absolutely. We're all about that uh, Midwest influence and impact, you know, and it's really real still. It's still Chicago, Minnesota. And um, I'd like to see more from Wisconsin. Um, but isn't it surprising that it's still kind of generally a lot of the same people, right? And Amazing. That, that, that's what is always 
impressed me about the people that came out of the Midwest. Like anybody that I know that has really decided that they were going to do this, right? They were going to work in music and kind of come in and, and present themselves. Almost everybody I've known has kind of gained at least the tier of success that they aspired to, right? You know, there's always like, everyone wants like the Michael Jordan level of whatever, and, and we're all dreamers. But um, I, 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 it's been exciting to see people out in the Midwest really kind of do well for themselves. If not career-wise, at least like music impact and like kind of historic impact and things. So um, yeah, super cool, super cool. Yeah. What's that been like for you? Because you've had really, um, if we look at what you've achieved, you're doing a lot, you've done a lot um, with DJing. How has that unfolded for you? Did it start in your drum and bass days that you began touring the world? And Yeah, I think drum and bass was, it was, it was already kind of the small thing, right? And um, because of like the internet, I was lucky enough to hook up with some promoters on the coast, um, like uh, Star Eyes at the time was doing bass crew. So I used to go out there and play for them. And uh, Diesel Boy was doing his platinum night in Philly. It was kind of just a small group. Um, Minneapolis had, gosh, what was MC Brace's crew called? I forgot those guys, his name. Yeah. Anyways, it was a crazy drum and bass scene in Minneapolis as well. And then of course, um, uh, Milwaukee with the, the drop bass team and, and the other DJs there. Um, so kind of limited, limited amounts of shows, but it was plenty for me, right? I was very excited and honored to do that. Um, but then I kind of took this uh, hiatus for music and um, what was it? Five years ago, maybe six years ago now with, with pandemic, I'm kind of subtracting a year from everything. Maybe I'll subtract two years from everything. So <laughs> I can lie about my age, minus two years now. Um, it, I had run into some colleagues um, and uh, they, they were asking me like what I had been up to. And I told them that um, I was in Berlin for a friend's birthday. And um, they had asked me why I wasn't teaching anymore. And I was like, well, you know, it just kind of didn't make sense anymore. And, and you know, honestly, it I, I won't even say it was necessarily a choice, right? The bookings just weren't there, right? The the incentives weren't there, and you know, the frustrations of maybe not getting to the levels that I wanted or whatever, all that kind of I, I don't ever want to kind of just say, well. I decided to retire or anything. It was like, it was all those things put together, right? Where um, things just weren't in the place that I wanted them to be. And so the, this friend was just like, that's crazy. You should DJ again. You're a really good DJ. Um, and then you can come hang out more. And I was like, oh man, that sounds cool. I want to come hang out more. And then um, I had decided to um, approach things a little bit differently this round um, kind of um, 
I don't want to say approach it seriously, but um, I approach things a bit more with, with specific goals in mind and decided to um, not necessarily have just like these expectations of these goals, right? I, I would say like, I, I would often in the past, and I'm, I'm sure I still do this, just kind of wonder why like this, this, and this isn't happening for me while these same circumstances maybe are happening for another person or whatever, or this venue is not interested in booking me no matter how many times I've tried to play there. And so I decided that any of these places or these routes that I've taken before, I just wasn't gonna pursue anymore, right? Like this, this, this club that is maybe the big club that I feel like I should be playing at, I'm just gonna accept they're not interested, right? You know, you ask twice and it's totally fine. It's booker's choice and you have to kind of respect their, their choice, right? They're, they know the music, they're curating something. So I'm just gonna kind of go off and do things in a, in a place that is a little bit more interested maybe in what I'm doing. And that took a little while to find and um, that just kind of grew on its own, kind of growing your own niche with your friends. And um, yeah, and, and I, it, I kind of always approach these things like knowing how the, my approach where I, when I was more like, I wish this would happen and it's kind of like not this fairness rule or whatever. Uh, I would equivocate like, I've got this many tracks on this label. That means I should be playing this thing or whatever. And none of that means anything, right? In a venue or a gig, the people that are attending are the ones that are dictating, right? Who they want to see. So for me to kind of decide well, no, these people are wrong. They want to see me, not this other well-known DJ. That's like a crazy thought, right? But I was guilty of having those thoughts in the past, right? And instead, um, I, I decided that I would just present myself more and just be like, hey, I have this other thing. Um, maybe you'll like it. And um, that that's kind of the way I've been approaching things. Um, and I, I won't ever discount the fact that um, I had friends that kind of believed in, in what I was doing and definitely did, I don't wanna say favors, but you know, your, 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 your immediate circle and those people that are um, supporting you make all the difference at the time, right? So um, those friends that I used to go to raves with or worked at a record shop uh, when we were kids. They happen to be big time DJs now, you know, playing at um, various shows. Some artists that I helped kind of produce some of their early music on, they're now doing these major things. So they then are, were familiar with me and familiar with the music I was doing. So it definitely helped in those ways too. So. I don't want to discount that's that's always a factor right like it there's there's always a degree of nepotism at anything i try to avoid that as much as possible but in the end 
doing stuff with your friends is way more fun than doing stuff with strangers. So, um, and when you, when somebody asks me about, hey, what DJ should I book? I don't necessarily suggest a friend because they're my friend. I'm just super familiar with what they're doing and I know they can pull it off, right? This person that I've never met that maybe I've seen them on Boiler Room or something, I assume they can pull it off, but I've only seen them on the internet. So um, it, it, it works in a weird way. It's still nepotism, right? And it's still kind of this like weird inside thing, but I, I hope most of the time people are doing it from when people book their buddy, right, to, to, to play a show or whatever, it just, it never works out, right, like, um, from, from various angles, so, um, yeah, I, I've, I've gotten super lucky in that way, too, right, like, my, my friends have really supported and helped me and kind of been there in there for me in that way too so and I, I, I attribute that to like just a bunch of like raver kids right and then we all kind of came up together and um they're still going yeah yeah it's interesting because you can take that out to um where we call it networking Right. And it's really commonly accepted that networking in music and business and anything is really um, an important factor to success and that it's totally cool to have those um, relationships. And a lot of the industry depends on those relationships. When we start talking about management and agencies, um, it's all about that. And then, of course, the roots of what we do, parties and rave culture, was all about, hey, let, I mean, that's how I started, just with friends. Hey, let's get together and throw a party. It's a party, right? Like let's have a good time. 25 people, you know, we were right. doing a weekly in this little space, and that's how it started. Of like, oh, I'm throwing parties, you know? Um, and it was all about friends who appreciated what each other were doing musically and wanted to play music together and put each other on. And so even if it's a, a friendship hookup, you know, business friendship hookup, if there's not the quality there, it doesn't work out, you know? Absolutely. It doesn't work out. That person has to be a really good DJ as well or a really good producer sure. as well in order for that to have any longevity, usually, most of the time. I mean, there's always those rare cases where you're like, eh, that shouldn't be happening. Like but, if you vouched um, for somebody and you're like, this person's awesome and they show up to play out of something and they don't deliver, that looks bad on you, right? Or, mm -hmm. or you know, so yeah. And, and in the end, I think people also have to like realize the people that are doing events, most of the time they're really well-informed on music, right? People always kind of like slag promoters all the time like oh the promoter the promoter the promoter like the people that I know that are in the business they've been in there as long as most DJs right and and maybe they professionally also DJ too but they understand a different angle about it right and it's 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 an angle that I don't understand at all right because when I've thought hey man if this DJ plays this week it's going to be killer everyone's going to come out and 
that's never how it works out, right? That's just music that I'm excited about that no one else seems to be interested. <laughs> so I'm always like, don't listen to me, please, because I don't want the guilt of like this not working out too well, you know? I saw that um, you have a gig coming up at Prism with Seth Troxler. Yeah. He's yeah. one of your homies, right? Yes. See Seth. you guys banter back and forth. Yes, yeah, Seth is a really uh, amazing human. Um, yeah, that, that gig was kind of one of those, I know you and I were kind of talking um, uh, last month about things opening up and um, April was a little earlier than I was anticipating to do things, right? Um, but with the vaccine rollout where it is in Chicago um, and kind of where cases are, I think I'm comfortable with it. Um, and Prism is now run. Um, one of my friends does operations there, um, this guy Lawrence, and he's the guy that kind of put on a lot of the drive-through parties. Uh, um, is it called drive-through? Drive-in parties drive -in, yeah. over the summer and kind of saw what a tight operation he was running and really kind of rule enforcement, safety enforcement, and um, knowing that he is the one kind of running that and I'm comfortable doing so. But it's always one of those things where like, what if something does happen, right? And you kind of always running through this dread scenario, but we'll, we'll see, you know, um, and, playing with Seth is always a treat because he's such an amazing DJ and kind of cool, cool human being. How did you guys become friends? Well, this is a, it's a crazy story. I'll have to edit this one a little bit. I had like, a feeling there might be a story there. Seth, That's what I was like. So Seth used to work at this record store in Detroit when he was like, God, he must have been like 13 or 40. He was way too young to be working, right? So there's this kid that worked at um, this record store in Detroit and he actually carried one of our monologic records and was really into it. And um, uh, then I, I just kind of remembered him from then. And then later, um, I think I ran into him through our, our friend Kate Simcoe in Chicago. And we just kind of was like, was that you, blah, blah, blah. And then, um, um, one of my, my best friend, actually, uh, this guy, Brian Franzen in Chicago, is really good friends with Seth. And so when Seth was, I think he was here with um, the Antwerp or something, some crazy tour, cool. um, we, we went to go hang out and um, kind of chatted again. And you know, he's just this kind of wild person. And so I had known that he was really successful and all these kinds of things. So I kind of stood back and we didn't really talk much. And then um, Seth was actually one of the people that really kind of pushed me to start DJing again. And I was like, oh, that's super nice of him to say. But I think when we really became friends, we I went to Fabric in London, like, I think it was like five, five or six years ago. And Seth is playing, it's like sold out room two. And um, he looks out in the crowd and just gets out from behind the turntables. And he's like, oh my gosh, this ramen place opened in Chicago. And I was like, when like people are trying to take pictures with him and he's just like flipping through his phone. He's like, you've got to go to this place, right? <laughs> and um, 
usually people give me terrible ramen recommendations, right? They're like, oh, this place is the best place in the world. And so it's always like my pleasure to like shit on the recommendation and be like, oh, that was terrible. You have, your palate is terrible, but this place is really good. And I was like, whoa, Seth knows his food. And um, after that, we kind of, we kind of just started talking uh, more after that. And um, yeah, he's just uh, really, the, Seth is like always the example I'll give of the Midwest raver kid, right? He was this kid that worked in a record store in Detroit. I'd see him at the drop bass parties. Um, he was just this like, he was the embodiment of raver, but like a child, right? Like, so his, his, his education of Midwest sound was so young and so for it was it's just crazy to see that happen to someone that's like 13 right um and uh yeah that that he is the he is like to me the end result of raves and he's kind of the last line of that um i think after him there's not really kids that went to raves age-wise i think he's like 30 mm you know, 33 or something now. So um, yeah, really interesting, but he's like, he is the product of, of the Midwest, right? And so um, his sound really kind of reflects that. Have you um, ever used those, those layers that have been added on to DJ success now, like management and, or do you think those are sometimes, um, really necessary to get past certain barriers to success? Or do you think that they can be bypassed? Um, I think one of the, the weird things about agencies and, and like my agent has always told me, you know, she's a very fiery uh, young lady. If you're not making me money, there's no reason for you to be here, right? And at first I was like, damn, geez. Um, but I also understand they want to keep their their roster curated, right? And if I'm not, so it's like it's almost like a reversal. So for me to even get into a, an agency that I was happy with, I had to have consistent bookings and I had to have a certain amount of international interest for them to be like, hey, I can make money off you, right? But then at a certain time, then you you an agent can't generate interest on an, on an artist necessarily, right? Basically, most agents, they're just kind of sending out an email, right? To, to yeah. various, hey, such and such is gonna be touring or hey, there's a cool, sexy picture of this DJ, you should book them and they have these releases. But I'm sure you as a promoter, like you, you got hundreds of those, right? So- um, Yeah, and I've got a filter on my email. Yeah, so they all get sent to a folder, you know? Right, and it's it's, how do you choose if you've never seen a name, even just like name recognition, right? Yeah. Are you that person that's going to be like, yeah, I'm going to give this person $2,000 and help sponsor their touring visa, right? It's just, it's, it's this, it's, it's like a vicious cycle, right? So um, like I happen to just luck out. I, uh, the person that's my agent now happened to just be at a show that I was playing, right? And she was like, yo, 
you got to get on the roster. And I thought she was joking. I was like, oh, is this person serious? And my friend's like, yeah, she's, she's really cool, blah, blah, blah. Like, Sweet. Um, but I had been with agencies before that will remain nameless that um, they just don't do anything because you are on this agency with these superstars, right? That are bringing in 80% of their income. Right. What are they gonna do pulling 20% of your fees? It was nothing then, right? So it's, they're gonna, even if there's interest in you, most of the time they're gonna upsell to the next artist, right? So yep. um, in the end, agencies just kind of facilitate, right? And sometimes that even gets in the way because there is an additional booking fee or they're going to try to like sell this promoter, some other artists on the roster and promoter gets a bad taste in their mouth or like you're, you're rude to do that or whatever. So, um, and then as far as like management, um, I had, ma management is a weird thing because management is like, management is there if you have something you need to manage right so if there if you don't if my plate isn't so filled with things that i can't really i can't tell the difference on or i think might be a bad move or a good move or um i'm definitely not at that point um so you know so, and some folks really kind of just need a babysitter too right luckily I, I'm in some control of my life. I mean, a, a bunch of it, but um, the people that I know that have heavy layers of management, they kind of need them there because they, 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 they need some assistance with things. But those things cost a lot of money. Um, yeah. And a lot of these PR companies actually run management companies as well. And I had been approached with um, what are called like 360 contracts where there is just a fee that is taken off of everything, like every transaction, um, kind of social medias go through them, all these various things. And um, when I was speaking to these folks, we just kind of realized like, no one's gonna make money here if we do this, right? Like, um, you know, this will push this fee into this kind of expensive range, which is already like minuscule. So how much work are you gonna put into this for this? 20% or whatever. So um, yeah, man, it would be cool to have to need to have a manager, right? To have all these like crazy things going on. Uh, but um, luckily I'm not, I'm not at that point. Um, agency is good for like, if there's no interest, it's very hard for an agent to kind of drum that up, right? You'll see that like, I, there's lots of artists, especially in maybe different genres that will buy, buy um, ad space, right? Or they'll buy articles about themselves, right? You'll see this DJ kind of just pop out on this, on this like um, magazine article that really sounds like they wrote it themselves. <laughs> and, you know, that's an unfortunate aspect of it too, right? Yeah. You can kind of pay for this stuff. But really, I've never seen that go anywhere. I can't think of a, a single case that I've seen like people that buy like Beatport plays and um, use these services, like it just never works out. And it's pretty obvious when, when things are like, hey, I had a million Spotify plays in this day and they're posting it and it's this person's first release. And sure, maybe it's a great song, but mathematically 
it just doesn't add up, right? And you know, if that's how they feel like they need to promote themselves, I think that's that's fine. Use whatever digital tools you need to. But um, the people that are putting events on or doing whatever, they're pretty smart, right? Uh, they they I think I think there's just this kind of like notion that that artists sometimes think they're just like outsmarting the this game, and artists are a small piece of it, right? They're a very important piece of it, but um, yeah, there, there are people that they do this for a living. They absolutely know. They know what is works. They know what is um, tasteful. They know what's proper. Um, and I'd say sometimes artists are so embedded into their niche or their genre or whatever. So it's hard to really tell kind of what's going on in the real world sometimes because you're so like, in your little corner and you and your friends are patting each other on the back all the time. Like, yeah, you're killing it, you're doing so great. And then you go out into the real world and everyone's like, yeah, you're making my ears hurt. <laughs> yeah. We need that, um, that feedback. Um, I was talking to someone else about this recently that, you know, I'm all for and about creating a more equitable world and music industry, right? Um, so having more women DJs has been, and providing support for women DJs has, has been something that became really important to me over the last few years, well, 10 years. Um, but I also feel like sometimes that goes too far. I shouldn't say too far. But sometimes we become, um, or I will sense that there's a lack of that feedback of like, oh yeah, you know, that really kind of sucks. I had a burp. <laughs> All good. <laughs> so what um, like, so, like criticizing? So like, yeah, like critical Critic feedback has become yeah. more difficult to do because we've entered into this realm of, where we so want to shift things and support and bring people sure. up that it's almost gone too like that's all we should be doing is, is right. supporting, supporting and things like constructive criticism or critical feedback um, or someone's just saying to you, you know, especially if they're not of your gender, maybe. Um, yeah, you know, that sucks. Um, has become uh, more difficult. And I know for me, some of that stuff that I experienced when I was learning, early 2000s, late 90s was really important. But um, I don't know that it's as readily available now. Do you, do you sense that at all? I think it's kind of shifted. I think um, like personally, um, I think it's a byproduct of social media, right? Yes. So you have these thousands of friends on Facebook and maybe you actually know 10 of them, right? right? Or you, you, then you divide that down to the people that you're comfortable. Let's say you're in a room with them and you're comfortable being critical of them, right? If you're like, oh, I can tell this person that the flies open or whatever, or something, uh, you know, there's this like varying levels of familiarity that like social media has just filled in suddenly for people, right? So um, people that you have never met, you can't even recall their name, they're, they're gonna come out and say this thing, right? 
And so let's say you said something that I would take offensive, right? I would be comfortable enough to be like, yo, that sucks that you said that, right? Or maybe I would offend you back in the same manner, right? If there is this like understood um, level of communication, right? There's a confirmation. And part of this is like being empathetic, right? You, you know this person's comfort level, you know what you can say to them, right? And, but you, you take something like Facebook and then the stranger is saying this thing and maybe they feel like they know you because they relate to your, something you posted or whatever, or you've been Facebook friends with them for 10 years, right? Um, so, so, you know, you have no idea what their background is to even give that critique, right? Right. Are, what is their qualification and why are they even saying this? Why do they have to? So my assumption when people do that is like, hey, they want to fight with me. And so I'm going to go all in on that. Um, but I think it's just people have interfaced with, with social media differently, right? And so um, for me, you know, I started off as like a gamer and, and all these kinds of things. So social media has always been kind of this like adversarial ground for me, right? Because it's always like an avatar and we should argue and all these kinds of things. And that's that makes funny, so much sense. Right. And like, you know, you remember how like these like BBS boards used to be, right? Like, um, you know, we used to be on these like internet bulletin board services. And yeah. most of the time, like, you're you're saying horrible stuff to each other right <laughs> but the difference was on those bbs's most of those people knew each other right so yeah. we would actually see each other the next week and so you said that crazy thing to me i'm gonna be like what was that all about or like you know there there is this different conversation and there's consequence then right i think especially now that some people maybe haven't been in a room with someone else for a year so that's been their interaction. And so these kind of checks and balances and things that you're comfortable with saying to your, you know, like my parents, right? I could love nobody more than my parents, but I've probably said some of the worst things that have ever come out of my mouth to them due to that familiarity, right? So yeah. it's like, um, am I proud of it? Are they good things? No, like I, terrible horrible things that a kid would say, right? And, you know, maybe I still say things that are off, but it's that familiarity that kind of makes that come out, right? And like, I also know that they're gonna love me no matter what, so that comes out there. And so when you're on the internet and there's a social media and this kind of critique, and it's, it's out there for everyone else to read and everyone else to digest and everyone else to maybe misinterpret, you can't, put in a sentence the background behind what you're saying, right? And explain maybe your familiarity with this person. And maybe that's why, you know, someone is making an obscene joke, maybe on a post of yours, right? But this is your best friend from grade school and you guys say this stuff together all the time in person, but the internet's gonna see this obscene joke and be like, this is a terrible thing to say to a woman, right? And so um, the, I, I think I think people have to 
kind of just ground themselves once in a while and understand that there's different levels of relationship and different levels of like, maybe I do want this person's harsh critique, right? But it's also like, what, what, what are the signals for that, right? And most of the time you're gonna ask, right? I'm gonna say, hey, and, and nowadays, maybe you have to say, no, for real though, like actually tell me where there's a problem and, and you set that up in, in a different way. And sometimes you don't know the person well enough to ask them for that critique, yeah. right? Like, it's like people will send me stuff all day. Like, I know I complain about this on Facebook, but like the first hundred demos people send me to listen to, like, I'm going to actually listen to them but like bro I, I don't know you I don't think this is a genre of music I enjoy I'm not going to listen to the demo and it's no slight on you and it's not me being like I just you know what what is what are either of us going to get out of me telling you like this is whatever I don't know you well enough to even say anything negative right or sit there and critique this so it's like I think these spaces of I'm sorry, this is so long-winded, but like these spaces that that happens, like like if I go to someone else's studio and they're listening to something and they I know them and they ask me, I'm gonna be like, well, this sounds off, right? And sometimes we insult each other. They're like, you're so stupid. I can't believe you said that, blah, blah, blah. And they, they explain it and I'm like, you're right. I'm totally wrong. I heard that wrong, but like, there's there's not many people that I would say like, God, that sounds wrong because like music is subjective. Mm -hmm. DJing is subjective, mm -hmm. you know, sometimes like I thought I had this great set and people are like, what was up with you that night? You seemed tired. And I was like, yeah, well, that's an insult, you know? Um, so yeah, it's anytime somebody does something that's like, let's say it's a painting or a flyer or a song or a mix like you don't know their sensitivities about that issue and I think it's important to recognize that but it's also you have to recognize that you are putting this on the world wide web for consumption yeah. so um most of the people that are going to listen to this are people you've never met right so there, there's a step you take where like um, like uh, people are always, you know, I, I, I post weird things on the internet all the time and people are always like, was that about me? And I'm like, do you think let's, let's do the numbers, right? Do you think I posted this for the people I don't know? Or did I post this for the very few people that I'm actually friends with on this platform? Um, so you, once you put it out there, it's kind of opening yourself up to that, right? Um, but at the same time, if you're going to really critique somebody, they're asking for a lot then, right? Somebody, if somebody wants your feedback on music, you are then putting yourself in an uncomfortable place by maybe being critical. You're really having to think about this and maybe you're wrong too, right? Maybe just you heard things a certain way. Some music sounds great some days and some days it sounds like trash, right? Just like you can't there's no like rule on that stuff. So um, yeah, I guess there's no good answer for that. It, 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 it depends on the individual and what they're comfortable with. And if you just don't know them, 
then my my general answer is like I'm not going to do this. I don't know you, right? Yeah. Because um, it's it's an unfamiliar situation, and um, there's generational differences, right? And and cultural differences on how people speak to each other and how they like being spoken to, and the 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 cues that I pick up from people about maybe what they're comfortable with or what they like or whatever, you lose all that behind the keyboard. So definitely. Um, yeah, it's best just not to do it unless like someone, someone really asks, right? And half the time people are giving advice in especially negative advice without thinking it's actually advice. They're doing it for other reasons, right? To either antagonize to um, impress somebody or to um, just be proud of this joke or whatever, uh, you know? So ev even the negative critiques, I don't really even get upset about unless they're like really a challenging critique. Like someone is like really, um, they're, they're really like putting it out there to the point like we might fight or something, you know? But that, <laughs> yeah. that, that, that's really the only time that you, I read that and um, I would say having your own, if, if you are a musician of any way or an artist in any way, you, you likely already have that group, right? That, that, that your friends or your colleagues that you can ask this, right? And if you cannot, you're better off just paying a professional then to get that critique, right? Because then they're going to really listen to it being like, I'm paying you $200 to listen to this. I expect like actual professional time, you to use your real sound system, you know, there's costs associated with that. And there, there are people that do that, right? Like real sound engineers and producers that'll be like, you need to do this, this, and this, and this is wrong. And this is out of bounds. And um, I, think, I think those services are out there and they should be utilized. That's a great point. What do you call that, those services? I think if someone like, wanted to look for it. It's just a producer, right? And and I think I think there's there's this idea that um, people's time is disposable, right? Mm. Um, whether it's like coaching on something, and so you listening to this should be free. Yeah, if you're my friend. I'm not going to charge you for anything, right? Like I'll come help you fix your fridge. If you want me to DJ for you for an hour and you're my friend, I'm not going to charge you, right? That's crazy, right? Like I'll come change your flat if you need. Same thing. If you're comfortable enough and you have this already like exchange of ideas with somebody, no, probably you can, you're not going to, they're not going to throw you a bill for it. But I think most producers especially ones that maybe are in your wheelhouse for the sound, you can most of the time hire them. Um, yeah. Especially during this time, I know like, for instance, Drum Cell, um, he does these courses with people and they're one-on-one -on -one, like consultations. And they're not necessarily about how to use Ableton and how to do this. They're really like breaking down and critiquing a track. And I think like he's one of those guys that's really great at doing that. And I think his, his students have had good results. Oh, that's amazing. Is that something he did before or has that come out of this COVID time of finding other ways to generate revenue? Mo was always like 
the dude that everyone called so he used to work mm. for native instruments so oh that's right he, yeah. we would always call him for help anyways and then um he also designs his his own like reactor plugins um with my friend Luis so the dude's just kind of understanding of things is beyond most people I know and because of that he was always inundated and he's got a lot of homies because he's a nice guy right so everyone is asking him for help all the time and so i think part of that was realistically he had to put a gate on that right because yeah. he was the world's tech support after a while right and i think i think he did consultations in some way but i think on covid he kind of formalized that a little bit more right yeah it's yeah, just rude to sense. call somebody and be like my stuff's not working dude and you know he's been doing that for all day and maybe he's touring and all that kind of stuff so um i think at all levels if you really like do care about the process it's important to like make people feel valuable for their contribution and sometimes that's money right like you spent this time helping me and you're not doing this thing because of it the least that you could do is get paid for it you know so yeah. and that's not necessarily that that's on all pieces of it right like for instance i i send a lot of my music to get mixed down right like i'll do a general mix down myself but i just there's some mistrust i have with myself i've been teaching for years so my ears aren't where they used to be and um there's just been so many times i've played something in a club versus my studio and i'm like oh my god i can't believe this got put out this way um that I pay people to do these kinds of various things that I know I'm not good at and um they're familiar with kind of how I want that product to be instead of like you know I would spend days trying to wrestle mixing down a track or mastering yeah. something myself and I was like fuck it I just suck at this right like I I can accept that right. and um someone else I know just down the hall in the studio is good at this and um I'm sure there's a hopefully a price that we can come to that's fair. Yeah. Time is a time is the big commodity, right? Um You were just talking about social media and I get such a kick out of your social media presence. Um thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Um do you want to share where people can find you at on social media? Sure. your meme queen of instagram which um, i love my instagram is heroko underscore underscore yamamura um it's uh i just i'm on the internet on the computer all day so i just post memes all the time and um it's it's you know people actually early on people were kind of giving me crap about it they're like why do you post this on your page or your artist page and i was like why is this an artist page why can't it actually just be a meme page instead right like people were criticizing me that it was some like um marketing ploy like this is how you're you're getting a following and all all of this and i was like if i post anything about music i get like two likes right this is this is a meme page and i just i can't run to to instagrams at once so sometimes i'll post some events and maybe a friend of mine will like it and I'm like oh good going congratulations <laughs> yeah um 
yeah, it's it's solidly now just it's it's solidly memes and um, yeah, you can just search my long ass name um, on the internet and I think I think I'm I'm close to the top of of the hits on those. We'll see. I think there's another Hiroko Yamamura that's like a singer or something, but yeah, you're pretty easy to find. Um... And your Facebook too, as I mentioned earlier, we've seen these race, um, racial attacks, hate crimes against Asian people lately sure. in America. And I know how I feel about that as people don't re realize that I'm Asian, a different type of sure. different part of the continent. But um, I just wonder how that is for you and your thoughts about that. Let me let the smoke clear the room. Yeah, really quick. go ahead, girl. Um, yeah, so you know, as as you and I were kind of talking personally about um, the the issue with um, a focus on Asian violence and and maybe kind of inequalities and things, it's it's a tough it's a tough thing to wrestle with. I think um, being Asian and growing up. Um, mostly in America and predominantly kind of white um, suburban uh, scenarios, there there is kind of this like self-denial about that situation too. And sometimes you kind of, you, 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 you it, it, it's, it's a tough thing because there's so many other, there's, there's so many, there's so much inequality in the world that it's, it's sometimes difficult to think that you're part of that, right? And um, I would say that um, while there have always been incidents of kind of um, racism growing up, it, it was never, I think, at a point that um, it put me back as far as it can kind of put back other scenarios. So um, I, I I, well, I think it's important to talk about it for me. I think it's not necessarily hampering me as much as it does other people. So it's, it's you know, it, I don't want to say I feel bad talking about it, but I kind of do feel bad talking about it. But at the same time, you can't deny kind of this, 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 this um, fog that's in the air, this heaviness in the air because of, of what's happening now. And in Chicago, especially, you know, there is, um, there has been a, a, a spike in violence in general, right? And then you're starting to see that towards um, the Asian community. And I think the Asian community has very much tried to be like the model minority, right? So um, when, when you live in America and you look different, you know, people are always going to say, where are you from, right? And they're, they're always going to kind of assume that you are not uh, American citizen, right? And that conversation happens. So um, you kind of grow up never really feeling American, even though you're American. You're like this subset of American. And so um, you're, you're American, but, you know, Japanese, right? So there's always the but. You you are you are from you are born here you are you are 
parents might be from here, but if you are um, Asian, most of the time you're American, but you're also, you know, people will be like, where are you from? And if you're like, I'm from Hinsdale, they're like, no, that's not what I meant, right? So right. already that like additional bit of conversation. Um, do I think people mean harm by that? Not at all, right? It's just that that's how things are. And um, the truth is growing up, you also kind of participate in that a little bit, right? Where like you, you, you go through these stages where you do feel disconnected from American culture. So you kind of overtly sometimes tie yourself to your um, ethnicity and, and kind of culture and things like that and find ways to, to, to differentiate yourself. And so um, it's, it's, you know, there's, there's, no, there's no Asian kid in America that hasn't been called names and kind of had squinty eyes made at them. It's just, it's, um, how, how much that affects people, I think we're starting to actually find out because like, it just, it kind of seemed like a, a, a harmless joke for a long time, right? Like most of the time with my Asian friends, it rolls off their shoulder, right? And people say things or make like, oh, you ate the cat or something, you know, something like that. And we'll sometimes go along with a joke and, and, and yeah, and sometimes it's actually funny, right? But it's also like, you have to understand then going along with those jokes, which I am guilty of, of lots of times and making the jokes myself to my other Asian friends, right? Um, it's always seemed inconsequential, right? right. I think we're starting to see now that like, yeah, that's not really a funny joke anymore, right? I thought it was funny a couple of years ago, but now I'm starting to realize like there, these words and actions have consequences. And now those consequences are starting to kind of um, come up as violence, right? And, you know, they've been directed by certain things happening uh, politically as well and kind of heightened because of that. But I'd say they were always going, they were always happening too, right? And I think the unfortunate thing is we're seeing this rise in attacks against like elderly people and, and people that are, um, easy targets, right? And um, that's, uh, that's not going to happen, right? And I think, I think getting, I, what can you do about that, though, right? So what, what, what messaging can stop somebody who's going to commit violence towards somebody because they think maybe they have COVID or maybe they took their job away or whatever kind of, um, crazy thing they might think, what messaging would prevent that, right? Um, I think now that we've got a shift in the um, White House, at least, hopefully some of that messaging that was very strong will die down, right? And, and kind of the, the okayness of, of saying that and having a platform that, you know, so, you know, the president of the United States, um, even if you think they're crazy and they're a buffoon, the fact that this person is on TV saying something like China virus and 
You know, there's people that are argue that, yeah, maybe it was from China or whatever, but people have said, hey, it has this negative connotation. And at that point you're like, okay, then let's, let's somebody is thinking this is bad, a bad thing to say. So we should reassess it, right? Um, so it, 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 it's hard to see where this is gonna go. I think um, it is still, you're still hearing increased um, reports about violence happening. You're seeing um, the severity of the violence actually increase as well. Um, but like, what, like, what do you think is causing it? Like you can't, I, it's one of those things I can't really put my, my finger on, right? And it's, it's you're, you're dealing, especially being Japanese in America, Japanese descent, you know, within my parents and grandparents lifetime, you know, the Japanese were interned um, due to kind of um, wartime reasons and, you know, weird things happened during wartime. And so they generationally, Japanese people living in America or kind of a continental states are used to that, right? And that was actually the law and that was the rule. And that's how people are educated. So you can't necessarily fault people either because that's what they were told was, was a fact, right? It was a fact that Japanese people are um, a bad, bad race of people. So um, I think time will just kind of have to tell, but at the same time, I think it's important to advocate and, and correct people. Like I, I would say I correct people more now on, on things, but I'm like, yo, you shouldn't say that, especially friends of mine, right? Where I'm like, okay, this joke was hilarious last year, but it's just not, it's not funny this year. Like you got to kind of just take this out of your rhetoric. Right. Um, and most people have been good about that. And they're like, I, I understand now. And I am someone who's guilty of like trying to be edgy and saying like edgy, funny things in the past, right? Which, you know, would include trying to offend people, right? And that's, that's what made my humor unique or something. Um, but I also realized that's like, just like the shortcut, right? Like if you wanna fight somebody like let's say you're trying to get into a situation that you get in a physical altercation with somebody. The fastest way to do that is to say the worst thing possible to them, right? That you can think of. And um, I think using race is such a dangerous thing, right? And I think using these kinds of words now where um, on the internet in these kind of like maybe video game environments, insulting each other all the time was standard, right? When I'm playing like Halo with friends, we're saying the worst possible things about each other's parents, right? Like your mother this and blah, blah, blah. They, we're starting to learn now because social media hasn't been around that long, right? That saying these things has these kind of continuing consequences and you know, I know people, Asian friends that actually just don't feel safe right now, right? Yeah. They, they, they take extra precautions um, or they like wear sunglasses 
in a mask so people can't really tell they're Asian in circumstances. And so like that that's really made me kind of think, wow, um, this is this is something to really take seriously. Yeah. And as you were talking, you know, that you brought up a really important point that just kind of crystallized for me. Um, that oftentimes, you know, with the jokes, the wit, the edginess, when we're amongst our own friends, there's that barometer we use of no one here is hurt. We're talking about our own race, perhaps, right. and no one here is hurt. So what's the harm? And there wasn't really a measurable harm. But as you say, what's come to our awareness is somehow that permits it to spread, to be okay beyond that circle. And it, it does cause harm then when it's rippling out. And so it's so important, I think, as you said, to be willing to speak up to our friends. And also then we do find that usually there's a positive response and that people are, are maybe already thinking about this or already maybe not entirely comfortable on some level that they're saying yeah. that. And then that little like, I, like nudge reinforces that. Yeah, okay, we're not gonna do that anymore. I've, I've had friends that felt genuinely pressured to sometimes go along with these jokes, right? Right. They're the only white person when we're out and they're not included in the joke then. And so we're like, yo, you can't say that dude, right? And then, then they understand, but sometimes like that joke, they say it and we all laugh and then they go and tell that joke when we're not around with their other friends because they know they got a positive response off of it. And that's how that kind of like can stack and not feel wrong for them, right? They're right. like, well, I said this uh, with my Japanese friends and they all laughed. And so I'm gonna use this joke next time I'm at this bar with maybe a, a different racial group or just a different group of people. So it, it's something that I, I'm trying to be personally more cognizant of because you know, even recently I've caught myself making some of these jokes to some of my Asian friends, right? And some of this is kind of self, you know, you, 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 you feel like you're getting ahead of the joke then, right? If you're a part of it, you're making the joke on yourself, then it's too late for this other person to make the joke on you, right? right? Which is a common way to cope with a situation, right? If you, if you can kind of self-deprecate something that you're uncomfortable with, then you've gone through the motions of it and then someone else saying it to you might have less of an effect or you think that's what's gonna happen, right? But um, I think that's a dangerous game to play then, right? Because then you're constantly thinking, well, I'm ahead of this. So this person saying this about me, sticks and stones can't break my bones, blah, 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 blah. And the problem is maybe they don't hurt you. That might be true. But because of maybe being okay with it, it, it precipitates that, right? So this person makes that joke in front of their kid or whoever, and they don't quite understand the context. And, and so it's like, um, it, again, you, you, people can say what their intentions are, but you may not ever actually know what they are, right? The person who you think is your friend, maybe they really do have a chip against Asians or who knows. So, um, and it could escalate to something violent. Maybe they had a, a, a 
past relationship that was really bad and this person happened to be this race and it stacks and stacks and then they end up committing violence. And just because you know them and you're of that race doesn't mean that they don't feel that way, you know? And that's, you know, it, it's complicated, right? Like you'll see yeah. people who say like, well, I'm not racist. I have friends of X and X and X race, right? That, that doesn't necessarily mean anything, right? Doesn't mean this, anything at all. This person is just cool, right? And you're like, I like this person. And maybe you're making the exception to your racism in this circumstance, right? Yeah. Or whatever it might be. And so um, I, I think it's, it's one of those things that for me personally, like I, 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 I don't want to necessarily, I don't have anything to offer right now besides my support, right? Like I, in, I've kind of thought about this and I'm like, what the fuck could I do, right? To kind of maybe help the community out or, or have something that has, you know, does something, right? That, 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 that there's a positive effect. I haven't come up with that. So what I don't want to do is also like clog the information chain and like maybe have like these memes about like hooing the bed and then this like, support for Asian, you know, um, Asian Americans right after that. And that kind of like um, makes makes everything kind of fill in sincere then. So it's 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 a complicated thing. Um, I I it, it it's almost like what the, the control of this and the actionability is outside of the Asian American community, right? So um, you can say till you're blue in the face, please don't do this to me. And that, that that's probably not gonna do anything, right? So it, it's kind of like letting other people know as starting with the people you're friends with, like, hey, that's kind of troublesome for me, right? And maybe re-communicating like, I probably laughed at that last year or maybe even last week, but maybe you shouldn't say that. Right. Or, or maybe shouldn't make this post that has this, you know, crazy Kung Fu character, whatever, whatever it might be. And, you know, I've, I've had friends kind of um, question me on why I was questioning maybe some of the content they were posting, right. That it was like this kind of like either hypersexualized or like exoticized Asian thing or like, this like weird kung fu kung fu adventure or something like uh one of the things that I was arguing with somebody about is like and this was kind of for sake argument's sake but like you know people say Godzilla with like a Japanese accent right and they write it that way but it was actually sold that way too right like you could buy the, the, the box of Godzilla with the R and the L kind of interchanged, right? And the fact is we, in Japanese language, the R's and L's aren't distinguished, right? They're kind of the same sound. And if people point that out to me, I'm not necessarily offended, right? Like, because it's a fact that in, in, in our language, R's and L's, but it's really not that funny of a joke either because you're just like, Hey, here's this fact. And um, I, I kind of pointed out to them like, hey, 
you really shouldn't say this during this time, right? Because you're, it's, God, what poor timing to kind of make like a joke on somebody's pronunciation. It's not the worst thing you could do. I'm not going to get that angry about it, but I think it's important to say like, especially if it's your friend, if you care about them and you care about the way they're presenting themselves to be like, you should not probably do that, right? Yeah. Definitely. Thank you for sharing that. Um, yeah, of course. And just to end, I could talk to you for ages more, <laughs> Thank you. actually, but I feel like we should wrap up um, on musically and in general. Anything in the coming year that you're really excited about after having to be on hiatus? I know you missed um, ADE, I think, last year. Yeah, gosh. So it looks like ADE is going to happen in October. Um, there's, uh, I don't have anything kind of solid in the books yet, but hopefully we'll get to get to visit Europe at least as tourists, right? And and go and and visit other countries. But um, I think I think being able to travel to Europe by October, with with the way the numbers are going in Germany and Italy, they're not not looking great right now, but we'll see. Um, uh, music wise, there's a couple releases coming up. Um, actually next week, I've got a new track on um, Planet E, uh, Carl Cards label. Um, it's a compilation by this really amazing DJ, uh, DJ Holographic. She's kind of like the, the new hope of Detroit. And she's just, if, if you've never checked her out, like. She has everything I love about Detroit in one package. Like you couldn't have picked like better representation and skills in an individual. And so I'm super excited about her success. Um, hopefully there's gonna be some shows on the horizon. Um, I don't know, it, it, it's, it's one of those things that like I'm watching the news every day to decide whether or not this is a good idea or not. Some days I wake up and I'm like, screw it, I'm going to go to Tulum and DJ this party um, because I'm vaccinated and, you know, everyone else is doing it already. But then the next day I'm like, man, this is a really bad idea, right? There's all these kind of factors. So um, it's, 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 it's right now it's kind of about self-control um, and it's about like, is the gig even going to be worth it, right? You know, going out there is this is going to be just some weird like who's traveling to Tulum right now? I know those are the people that you want to be like partying with anyways, and you know um, maybe now is not a few months ago. Maybe I'm being a little harsh on Tulum, but um, you know when when people were playing these parties and 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 going places against like CDC recommendation, man, those are probably not people that I'm down with anyways. So it's not worth playing this event. So um, I'm, I'm hoping to get back doing gigs, but like, as you mentioned, like who knows what this landscape looks like. Um, I've got like a few offers out there, but they're all contingents on contingents on contingents. So um, there's, there were so many, there were a few shows that I really was excited about doing this year, um, 2020, not 2021 that didn't happen and they kept getting pushed back. And I was like, 
going against my logic, thinking that they were going to happen. I'm like, yeah, COVID's going to be gone in two months. We're good to go. That I'm very, I'm being very careful about being too excited about uh, getting back into things. So um, I think I'm just, I'm going to watch the news, get information. Hopefully the government and health regulations will give us better advice now and, and actual actionable items that we can follow step-by-step step and uh, we can, we can uh, I'll get back on the dance floor. Luckily, Wisconsin and Chicago are looking better and I think our restrictions are starting to go down. So I'm, I'm starting to feel more comfortable here, but I also know that like, I'm very lucky to have been vaccinated and that's not a lot of people. And so if me playing somewhere ends up with somebody getting sick or, you know, maybe just not even dying, but just being sick and miserable, like I'm gonna feel pretty bad about that, right? Um, yeah. So uh, it, it's like day by day. So hopefully, hopefully that stuff happens. And um, there's a few releases that I think are a little premature to mention because I think the labels, they, they're very iffy about when release dates are too, because they of course want to maximize sales and maximize visibility. And I think they're kind of waiting for things to open up for that to happen. So hopefully I can announce some stuff soon. We'll be looking out for it. Sweet. Hey, thank you so much, Roko. Thanks for taking the time and thank sharing. Thank you for having me. I, I really, I really appreciate us hanging out.